On this episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, we discuss recent news including the 2021 report to Congress on the CMS oversight of accrediting organizations, review recent survey experiences including policy and procedures in anesthesia issues, and in our focus segment, we discuss the state of networking, local servers, and cloud-based hosting with our friend Darren Smith with Surgical Information Systems. This episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey is sponsored by Surgical Information Systems, SIS. SIS's mission is to deliver solutions and services that help surgery providers, regardless of care setting, improve their organization so they can deliver the highest level of care to their patients. For more information, go to sisfirst.com. Welcome to episode 187 of the ASC podcast with John Gailey for May 15th, 2023, recording on the road to ASCA 2023. This is Sue Cronkite, Chief Researcher for the ASC podcast with John Gailey and Operations Manager for Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies. We'd like to remind our listeners that the ASC regulatory environment is a rapidly evolving landscape and the material presented in this episode is based on the most current information available as of the date of recording. As such, it's important to recognize that this information may be subject to change and we advise all ASCs to stay up to date with the latest regulations and guidelines issued by their relevant regulatory bodies. And joining me today is John Gailey, the owner of Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies and one of the most respected experts in the ambulatory surgery industry. With over 30 years of experience, Mr. Gailey has authored over 10 books on the ASC industry and is a sought-after speaker on regulatory accreditation and finance issues. As a matter of fact, you're going to speak uh, uh, about ASCA. That's right. <laughs> we, uh, we truly are on the road. We're not actually in a car, but right. uh, <laughs> we're at a hotel. Uh, we, we decided to drive to ASCA this year uh, since three of us are going. Uh, we have about 10 of our employees going, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but three of us are, uh, are going uh, together uh, without flying. It's only about, I think it's about a nine-hour drive, but yeah. we broke it up into two parts, and mm-hmm. we stopped out, and we're, we're in Grove City, Ohio right yes. now. Um, but this hotel is uh, not the most convenient, and the equipment we're using is uh, one of the three portable studios mm-hmm. we have, the middle one. So it's it's not huge, and the sound quality is probably not perfect here. But um, but we thought we would try to get an episode out. We're going to try to get a couple episodes out, mm-hmm. you know, while we're at ASCA. Not sure how that's going to work. If you are a listener of the podcast, uh, make sure you send me an email at info at ASCPodcast.com if you're going to be at ASCA and if you'd like to meet up with us because we'll try to get a bunch of our listeners together to mm-hmm. uh, talk over various things. Um, I'm going to be speaking on uh, benchmarking during this conference. I'm looking forward to, yep. to that. Uh, we got a lot of um, great things. I'll be you know, the schedule for ASCA is always so uh, busy for those of us mm-hmm. that are on the uh, education committee. Uh, so I'll be, uh, if I'm not speaking, I'm usually uh, moderating sessions. Yeah. So we'll you'll see you're running some... this way and that way. That's right. Kind of wave at you when you go by. But... And I think I promised just about everybody that I've met, yes, mm-hmm. I'll have uh, dinner with you uh, while I'm down here. So if I miss you for dinner, I apologize about that. <laughs> 
And I just want to uh, mention that um, we missed Nurses Week, but uh, belated happy Nurses Week to everybody. So I'm sorry we missed that, but we just didn't get a podcast. We just out didn't at get a podcast point. out. We yeah, were, I mean we're we're about we're trying to get down to every week now. We're about every other week now um, with the podcast, yeah. but uh, we've got a lot of backed up. I think we have about I think we have at least seven interviews that yeah. are backed up. So uh, well, we've got some been, work ahead of us. It's just been so busy. I mean, when you consider that halfway through our drive to Kentucky from New York is our most opportune time to try to get a podcast in even though we live together that's right (laughs) there's been so much travel lately it's like well we've had a lot of surveys which we're going to talk about in a minute uh you know just some of the survey experiences and of course one thing that we always talk about um at amateur healthcare strategies is that you know not all of our clients are well prepared you know Uh sometimes people hire us at the last minute uh or they bring us in and they give us very limited role uh, so, you know, often we're, we're learning things, too, that, aren't, you know, that we kind of know, but we really want to emphasize to people, you know, as they prepare for a survey. There's always yeah. a lot of great. And, and you know, so a lot of, uh, a lot of what we uh, talk about on our Saturday morning sessions with mm-hmm. our patron group is the survey experiences. Mm-hmm. And really, that's what happens with many of our, our podcasts here. Yeah, because, so, you know, surveys change all the time. I mean, there are certain things they should be, they need to be looking at, but... It, you know, there's kind of trends that you see sometimes yeah. where, you know, certain things come up and everybody sort of focuses on that for a little while. And, and I guess that we really need to continue to emphasize, I hear this so many times, oh, I've never been cited for that before. Mm-hmm. And we're going to talk about that in a minute when we talk about the AA, you know, the, uh, the accreditation organization uh, oversight by CMS because yeah. they are recognizing that. You know, in, in one case or in two of the uh, accrediting organizations, one out of every five times they miss uh, critical items in the survey. Mm-hmm. So you know darn well that those survey organizations are going to be on top of that mm-hmm. the next time that uh, they survey you. So um, surveys are not stagnant. There's always looking at things uh, differently. We're, you know, mm-hmm. we're constantly getting training to update our knowledge base. And, uh, you know, we're being critiqued as surveyors. We, we are being critiqued and as to how well we do a survey. Yeah, and depending on how much you find, you only have this limited time, so you may cite a bunch of stuff. If that's taken care of, that next survey is going to find other, other things. things. Of course, yeah. if you don't take care of those original things, it's just going to be worse because you don't ever want to be cited for something twice. Yeah, so you make a very important point, too, is that I've seen, you know, when, when a survey occurs and there is a revisit survey, uh, you know, the centers get upset when the surveyor finds something else. Mm-hmm. You know, they say, that's not right. They're not allowed to do that. And well, indeed, they are. If yeah. they find other things on a subsequent survey, they certainly are allowed to bring that up. And that, mm-hmm. that's really part about quality improvement. You're, you're always looking for ways to improve you're always looking for issues in a surgery center because remember cms requires you to be in compliance with all of the conditions for coverage all the time not just at survey time yeah so be familiar with those because it doesn't matter if somebody notices them after five surveys Right. You know, you'd have to make sure you're compliant with all those things. Well, and you bring up, and I, I don't think I actually put this in our uh, bullet points to talk about later, but one of the things that's become very apparent uh, in recent surveys, both as a surveyor and, you know, working with clients, is they don't read the accreditation manuals. Uh-huh. Um, I, I literally, in the, in the survey I had last week, a client that really, uh, you know, uh, was not terribly prepared uh, for the survey, they really didn't take our advice very seriously, unfortunately. And and what happened is, you know, during the survey, it became very apparent to the surveyor that the only person that knew what was in the survey guide was me. 
and that the uh, indeed the uh, the administrator didn't even know that there was a survey guide. The doctor asks the question. He says, "Now, you know, how do we get those questions everybody you know will ask during the survey?" I said, "It's an open book test. You know, all of the yeah. questions that they're asking during a survey are going to be in that accreditation manual, no matter which one you uh, which accreditation mm-hmm. organization you use." And it's not an easy reading book, but you know no. you can you can kind of spread it out among the people that you work with, you know, with their specialties, and they can look and see, okay, am I doing this? And, you know, start early because it it, it isn't a quick read, but it's right. all right there for you. So let's talk about some of the recent news. All right. So I saw in Becker's ASC review on May 11th some information about some physician specialties that have had some big increases lately. So OBGYNs had the biggest salary increase in 22 on average, obviously, but earning 332000 which was up 14% more than, than the year before. That was a top one. And then radiologists are up 12%. Anesthesiologists are up 8%. Cardiologists are up 8% and neurologists are up 7%. So I wonder with the anesthesiologists, because isn't there almost like a shortage there, there of anesthesiologists? And, and I mean, it sounds like they're doing pretty well. It just, I, I guess it, it, well, it I think would be a go, stressful job. I mean, yeah, and we go through cycles too where, yeah. you know, people get into it and, um, you know, uh, um, you know, go into the education programs and then, you know, uh, and then you have a lot of anesthesiologists and then, you know, it, mm-hmm. then of course it cycles out. So I, yeah. I think that's a very natural thing with anesthesiologists. But I don't think there's any doubt right now that there is a real shortage of anesthesiologists. Yeah. It's going to be interesting to see. Uh, what we're going to see during uh, ASCA 2023 mm-hmm. here when they start talking about that. Yeah. And just a quick note, um, the Fair Labor Standards Act, or FLSA, there's an updated poster that's required. There were some changes made, including accommodations for um, pumping, you know, for nursing moms. So there's John, we'll put the link in there for you to go to and just print out that poster. Right. You can actually, uh, you don't actually have to pay for it. This is a poster you can hang yourself, though. Though many organizations uh, purchase new posters mm-hmm. every year, which I really recommend. And keep a very yeah. close eye on this. I know in New York, they just issued some new regulations or new requirements for healthcare facilities uh, to provide you know spaces for nursing moms. Uh, there is a federal requirement, obviously, in the FLSA, mm-hmm. but your mm-hmm. states might have a more stringent requirement. Yeah. And I saw an NPR article on May 2nd. Um, talking about the nursing shortage again, and I hate to talk about this right after Nurses Week, but um, they had said close to a third of the nurses nationwide say they're likely to leave the profession for another career due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, And around 89% of registered nurses said the nursing shortage is worse than five years ago, not surprising. And although the you know the pandemic has made it worse, he said even before the pandemic, the younger generation was moving away from nursing. That first and second year nurses, which I've seen myself, right. they're leaving the profession at a higher rate. They just get into it and they realize it's really not what they thought it would be. Um, and yeah. this, of course, was made worse during the pandemic. I think it is important, though, you know, that the advantages of working in a surgery center mm-hmm. cannot be. Um, uh, you know, needs to be brought out to people when you're trying to recruit them because you worked, you know, when I first met you, as a matter of fact, you were working on a nursing Mm -hmm. floor and you were working, you know, strange hours, 12, Mm -hmm. 13, you know, you would say you'd have a 12 hour shift, but you wouldn't come back home for Mm -hmm. until 15 hours later. So I I don't know how that math works out, Um, but you don't find that sort of thing generally in an ambulatory surgery center. And I think as we're recruiting, those are the types of things we really have to emphasize. Yeah. I have to let people know about and letting people in nursing 
nursing school know because I don't think surgery isn't always one of those things they talk about a lot and certainly not um, outpatient. And, and I'm hoping people will even consider going into outpatient mm-hmm. uh, surgery centers before they completely leave. You know, they need to know that yeah. there is that alternative, that that lifestyle in the hospital mm-hmm. is not the only avenue for nurses. Yeah. They had noted that one of the problems there's more violence toward the medical professionals in the workplace and staffing levels, of course, as they decrease, stress increases, and it just builds on itself. And again, with the violence, I mean, I know it can happen anywhere, but I think you're more likely to encounter that when you're in a hospital or, you know, when when people are waiting and waiting and they're sick and, you know, waiting in the ER and all that kind of thing. So that's another benefit, I think, of the ASCs. Um, they mentioned more nurses are going on strike. In 2022, eight of the 25 work stoppages that involved more than 1,000 workers in the U.S. were done by nurses. It's a pretty staggering uh, statistic, yeah, actually. Yeah, yeah. And um, experts are just suggesting some real changes need to be made to fix this issue. You know, they talked about their, their, everybody's talking about it, this, everybody's worried about it and concerned, but not a lot is really being done to fix it. So, you know, they, they really needs to be some sort of legislation or something. Um, be great if people could, you know, if you could hear nurses saying more what they love about being nurses. Because right. it's always been that more than the pay or, you know, of course, the job availability is a, is a huge bonus, but... You know, I think it's just there was always a special place for nurses that, yeah. you know, they were well-respected. You always felt like you were doing something something good with your life. And I think that has to be talked about a lot more. Um, and maybe see some incentives for young people that going to nursing school to, to get encouraged to do that. But And I think, like John said, you know, the more you can talk about the what you love about your actual workplace, being an ASC, that, you know, better off, hopefully, we'll all be. So every year we uh, we talk about the, uh, the the report to Congress from from Medicare uh, regarding the oversight of accrediting organizations. So every year um, CMS reviews the activities of the accrediting organizations like Joint Commission, Triple H C, Quad A, uh, ACHC. Um, they do it for all uh, types of providers, hospitals, surgery centers, nursing homes, etc. And that report is available. It goes to Congress and is used to determine how effective accrediting organizations are in carrying out their responsibility to do deemed status surveys. Uh, So the fiscal year 2021 report to Congress, review of Medicare's program oversight and accrediting organizations, and the clinical laboratory improvement amendments of 1988 validation program report is available. And I'll show a link to it in the uh, the show notes here. Uh, But what happens with this validation program? CMS conducts a survey of a facility within 60 days of the accreditation organization survey. So just when you think it's safe to uh, take a vacation, you know, you have an accrediting organization, a deemed status survey, an unannounced survey. You finish with it. You have the party afterwards. And then, voila, within 60 days, uh, your state uh, agency shows up and does what they call a validation survey. They really go through the entire survey again. And they compare the results of that survey to the results of the accrediting organization. And they publish the results of all of this uh, once a year. And we've, we've talked about this for many years over the years. Um, But there's always interesting statistics in this, so I'm going to go through some of those stats. So right now, there are four deemed status organizations that are still in operation for ambulatory surgery centers. There's Quad ASF, better known right now as Quad A. There's AAAHC. There's the Joint Joint Commission. And there's ACHC, which used to be known as HFAP. Mm -hmm. 
And so let's just start with some interesting statistics on the number of deemed status ambulatory surgery centers, which means the number of surgery centers in the United States, uh, there are uh, 6,019 surgery centers in the United States in 2021. So 2014 of those, about a third, almost exactly a third, of the ambulatory surgery centers in the country choose to hire an accreditation organization to do their uh, Medicare certification survey. And what this does, as many of you I'm sure knows, it reduces the number of surveys you have if you desire to be accredited. Uh, And it takes the responsibility for the CMS or for the Medicare survey off the state agency and puts it on an accrediting organization. The downside is you end up having to pay for it, of course. The upside is that if you were gonna have a state survey anyway, you know, might reduce, or, or and an accreditation survey, it might reduce the number of surveys that you have in the average year. So of the 6,019 ASCs in the United States, 2,014 of them uh, are deemed status, and 4,005, in other words, two-thirds of them, uh, continue to be non-deemed, in other words, relying on the state agency to do their surveys. The next statistic that I thought was interesting is the breakdown of surveys by the different accreditation organizations. So in uh, the total deemed status surveys, uh, surveyors, as we said, are 2016. Quad ASF has 239 organizations. The largest organization by far is Triple HC with 1,015. So uh, there are almost twice the number of Joint Commission, which does 674. And ACHC, an up-and-coming organization, only did 40 in 2021. And also in 40, in 2021, IMQ was still around. They're now out of business, and they did 48. So I suspect we're going to see ACHC uh, continue to increase. Mm-hmm. We I know so. we ourselves have three uh, in within our own organization that are ACHC. So I think those numbers are going to increase pretty dramatically. So again, HHC is the largest with 1,015. Joint Commission, 674. Quad ASF, or better known as Quad A now, is 239. And ACHC is in fourth place at 40. I thought another interesting statistic was the number of denials of accreditation. So of the surveys done in uh, the 2016 surveys done in 2021, 76 were denied uh, deemed status, denied, in other words, failed their survey. Triple H C had the highest number of denials, largely because of the number of surveys that they do at 58. Quad ASF had the second, even though they didn't have the largest number, uh, or the second largest number, they had 13 denials. Uh, Joint Commission had four denials, which is very low, uh, I would think, and, and ACHC had one denial. So it's an interesting statistic in itself that 76 yeah. did not pass that survey at all. So the next statistic that I thought was interesting is the number of uh, validation surveys. And and again, there's a one-year lag, so we're looking at the surveys done in 2020 for 2021. So in uh, 2018, they did 58 validation surveys in 2020. 19, they did 67, and then of course in 2020 it dropped dramatically to 28. So, but what was interesting, Sue, was the dramatic decreases over the last three years Uh of the number of citations that they found were not caught. So, in other words, 41% in 2018, 41% of the validation surveys identified problems with the accreditation organization survey. That dropped to 34% in 2019, and in 2020, it dropped to 18%. Now, the sample size is not huge here, and we're talking about 28 validation surveys done in 2020 compared to 67 in 2019. But still, I thought that was a pretty, I mean, it's almost half. 
So it does seem like the accreditation organizations are getting better. You know, we'll know better as we see the trending going into the next year. Uh, but it does seem like they are. But that's still one out of every five surveys mm-hmm. still has uh, an issue. In other words, the survey organization did not catch anything. And that's, again, a point that we were talking about earlier yeah. here is how important it is for you to realize that every survey is going to be different and you might end up with, um, you know, different results, uh, even though, you know, the survey's three years apart and not much mm-hmm. change or you didn't feel much change. So now let's compare the findings between the, uh, we can only look at AAAC, Quad A, and Joint Commission. There was not enough, there was actually no validation surveys performed uh, or very few, actually only one performed for ACHC, so they have no data. So for 2020, the uh, both Joint Commission and HHC had an overall disparity rate of 20%. In other words, one out of every five of those surveys uh, were found to have deficiencies, were not found to be complete. Now, that is down dramatically for HHC. Um, it is up slightly for Joint Commission from the prior year. And again, I'm going to give a reference so you can look at these data mm-hmm, yourself. Mm-hmm. But interestingly, the overall disparity rate for Quad A was only 13%. So Quad A this year, and we've talked about this before, Quad A is in the past has, has had a pretty uh, high disparity rate. They clearly have uh, caught up now, and their disparity mm-hmm. rate was almost half of what it was for AAAC and Joint Commission. Mm-hmm. And that was largely because of the health and safety. So they break down the data a little bit more between health and safety and physical environment. So uh, Quad ASF and Joint Commission both had no disparities on the health and safety uh, survey. So they found no. Uh, so that, and that's fascinating that Quad A and Triple and Joint Commission uh, did not have any uh, findings of uh, additional citations that they would have had. Uh, HHC, however, did. They had a 10% error rate. In other words, one out of every 10 surveys found on the health and safety side uh, that there was a disparity. Uh, on the physical environment side, uh, the highest disparity was with Joint Commission, meaning that one out of every five, 20%, one out of every five times Joint Commission missed a physical environment uh, citation. Quad A was the, the second at 13%, and HHC was the lowest at 10%, which is not a surprise for those of us that work with HHC. We know that their life safety people are probably mm-hmm. some of the most experienced in the industry. Um, so, interesting statistics. Again, uh, just to kind of conclude there, uh, uh, Quad A and, tri- and Joint Commission both had no uh, disparity in the 2020 findings uh, with the health and safety. Uh, findings and and triple uh, HC had a ten percent, and on the physical environment side, triple HC and the on the reverse side there, uh, they had the lowest number of life safety findings that were different from uh, what the state agency found, and Joint Commission had the uh, the worst at twenty percent. So I thought that was just very interesting uh, information as you're looking in their accrediting organizations. If you mm-hmm. uh, you know want to compare the size of the organization, the types of survey experiences that are out there. Let's talk a little bit about some recent experiences. So as I mentioned earlier, we had an interesting survey this last week, which was uh, not good in, in some ways. I mean, they'll pass the survey, but one of the findings was uh, during the survey, two things were apparent. The administrator was very poorly perform, uh, prepared for this. So we prepared the policy and procedure manual, but mm-hmm. it 
it was very apparent that nobody in the organization read that policy and yeah. procedure manual. Nobody updated the policies and procedure manual. And nobody knew where the policies and procedures were within that manual. So during the survey, here I am, you know, I'm, I'm uh, pulling these, these policies mm-hmm. out for the surveyor to look yeah. at. And, you know, it did not look good for the administrator because it was clear that she really wasn't very knowledgeable. And as we mentioned, she wasn't even knowledgeable about the accreditation manual. So we've talked about this. And sometimes, Sue, I feel like I'm in Groundhog Day just repeating myself. But, you know, you can't buy an off-the-shelf policy and Uh procedure manual. Uh And we're aware that there's some companies out there right now that actually do online policies and procedure manuals. And the first thing they'll tell you is, do you want to switch over to our policy manual? I mean, that's a heck of a lot of work to be mm-hmm. able to just pull something down and modify it. And, and yeah. you're inevitably going to find a lot of work that goes into mm-hmm. that. And even with us, we we work very closely with the center. We you know do a lot of the hands-on work, and we know what the regulations are, but we really need you know, input from the center. And then once it's all done in that collaboration and we make sure it matches the regulations and what the center is doing and what they want to do, um, they still have to use it. And I've, you know, just recently had a a situation and I just found out there, you know, we we sent them the manual and it's just kind of sitting there somewhere. I don't know where, but they, they didn't even put it into, into use and that, you know, you have to be so familiar with your policy manual. It's not just a matter of having one that you can show to the surveyors. You have to, you know, like, like John always says, a living, breathing Document. kind of a yeah. thing. You know, you, you have to make sure all of your staff is educated on it and that you're very familiar with it and updating it when things change and and all of that. You know, it really, really has to become a part of your culture, kind of. And and I think this is because this is why companies like Amateur Healthcare Strategies are becoming so popular now is that, you know, the administrators, the nurse managers, of course, just don't have time to stay on top of that. And every time a regulation changes, every time an accreditation standard changes, every time you change equipment around or the uh-huh. types of services you're providing, you're going to inevitably have changes that have to occur to the policy manual. And then your staff, you know, you as the administrator or the nurse manager might be, you know, writing these policies, but your staff has to be educated on every one of those policies. And it's often during that education that you find out, oh, no, that's not what we do, or we can't do that. Mm -hmm. Or by the way, you know, we don't have that piece of equipment that you're referencing there. Um, And those are, are, of course, during a survey could be very embarrassing to you. Another thing that uh, came up during the survey, and this has been happening a lot, both for me, um, you know, on surveys, doing a survey, uh, as well as some of our clients, uh, is making sure that the anesthesiologists do a heart and lung evaluation, pull out a stethoscope. So this is kind of an easy one. As a surveyor, if we're looking around and we don't see that they have a a stethoscope, you know, right there, you're going to have a ding. Uh, obviously, you need to do uh, something like a heart and lung if you're going to have anesthesia provided to the patient prior to the surgery. Uh-huh. And another thing that came out is, and this is just kind of something that's, I say, relatively new, but we're taking a lot harder look at timeouts now. Uh-huh. And this just really makes so much sense, Sue. And I know some of the accrediting organizations, uh, including HHC, require it. And you want to make sure that one of the final questions that you ask during that timeout is do you have all the equipment, supplies, and implants necessary to complete the procedure? Uh 
And I've had some pushback from the doctors saying, well, of course we do, you know, otherwise we wouldn't be standing there, you know, ready to start the procedure. But, uh, you know, it is, it's mm-hmm. not infrequent that you find something. And this is that last opportunity for somebody in the room to speak up. Mm-hmm. And I hope that during these time, uh, time, timeouts um, that everybody feels empowered to say something because mm-hmm. I, I, this is the way I look at it. Something terrible happens during a procedure. Everybody in that room, everybody in that operating room is going to be held accountable for it. Yeah. So you might as well just speak up if you think something's not right or if mm-hmm. you don't have the proper information or if you're not sure of the procedure that's being performed or the side that it's being performed on mm-hmm. or that you have all the equipment there so please you know make sure you take these timeouts and again uh, it is not infrequent that I have to remind people to do a timeout or they might do one that's kind of haphazard um, or nobody will be part- or not many people yeah. will be participating yeah. the frequent I hate to pick on anesthesiologists because they are some of my dearest friends uh, but anesthesiologists are often the ones that are still hooking the patient up. They're, you know, starting the medication. They're drawing up meds, and they're the ones that are often not really fully engaged during the uh, the timeout. And of all the people that in that room, they're probably one of those that absolutely has to be engaged. So, so we have, uh, as we've talked about many times before, uh, part of our patron program is our patrons. Uh, we all get together on Saturday mornings. It's a, it's a lot of fun on Saturday mornings at ten o'clock, and we talk about different things. The uh, the number of people that show up uh, varies each mm-hmm. sun each Saturday, and um, it's just really one of the major advantages of being a patron. We get a lot of good advice. We have episode, you know, a lot of things, uh, ideas for episodes coming mm-hmm. up, and uh, one of the uh, conversations that we had about a couple months ago. It took me a while to organize this was just kind of talk through everything that's going on in IT right now information yeah. technology what's going on with computers EMR systems you know technology in general so you're going to see a, an overall theme over the next three to four months as we delve into this our, our sponsor SIS surgical information systems always is at the forefront of this and we're so grateful that they bring us so many great people to talk about and Darren Smith who I think gets the award for the most frequent guest on our show we talked to him about uh, and this kind of sounds boring but it really isn't about you know what's been happening as centers are moving away from net, from in-house networking to cloud-based networking and there's so many things you have to take into consideration and i think it was a fascinating conversation that we had talking about where we are right now where we were in the past so we understand mm-hmm. the history and where we're going into the future and the huge impact that this is going to have on the way we do business uh, you know, the, taking into consideration texting, taking into consideration mobile devices, uh, cloud-based, you know, how do we avoid cybersecurity issues? Uh, and over the next couple months, we're going to be talking about all of those items even in more depth. So for this interview, we thought we would kind of start with uh, a little bit of uh, a look at networking, uh, how we, you know, have servers in our organizations, how we're starting to use cloud-based services. So let's take a short break, and when we come back, we'll have that interview with Darren Smith from Surgical Information Systems. When it comes to the financial outcomes of your ambulatory surgery center, it has never been more important to maximize revenue, tighten the time to bill and collect payment, and reduce denials from payers. Yet without a keen focus on your revenue cycle, it can be difficult to achieve the results your center needs to remain profitable. The revenue cycle experts at Surgical Information Systems can help. With Revenue Cycle Services from SIS, 
you can improve the financial health and performance of your ASC. CIS Revenue Cycle Services takes care of all aspects of the revenue cycle, including compliant coding based on documentation, claim preparation and submission, claim management, accounts receivable management, billing follow-up, month-end reconciling and closing processes, standard and customized reporting, and patient portion due and or balance management. By doing the heavy lifting, CIS Revenue Cycle Services leaves you to do what you do best, provide affordable, high-quality care. In addition to managing your revenue cycle, the CIS RCS team uses a five-step process to monitor, analyze, and make recommendations for improvement to your revenue cycle performance. More than 50 ASCs enjoy these results from CIS Revenue Cycle Services every month. Faster claim submission, shorter time to pay, improved AR follow-up, higher net collections, expert coding to meet exact payer requirements, and an overall more consistent revenue cycle. Visit CISFIRST.com to learn how the revenue cycle experts at CIS can deliver improved financial health for your ASC. Again, that's CISFIRST.com to learn more about CIS Revenue Cycle Services. So I'm here with my dear friend, Darren Smith from SIS. Darren uh, probably has the award for the most appearances on our podcast as a, uh, as a guest speaker. So Darren, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, thank you so much for having me. So we've been working with some of our patron members here to identify issues that our listeners are facing right now. And um, there, there was a big discussion a couple of weeks ago about the challenges of the computer systems, and and it was broad based. It was not just EMR and you know the uh, the regular practice management type systems, but also the technology behind them, uh, as well as implementation issues and you know how you decide on these things. So this is the first of a number of interviews that we're going to be doing uh, over the next I think four to six months here with our friends and our our big sponsor here of SIS uh, to talk about these topics. And we thought we would kick it off with Darren to talk about the technology side uh, here um, and and how, you know, the industry is definitely moving in a different direction than it has been, you know, over the past 40-some-odd years, really. So, Darren, why don't you talk a little bit about where we are, where we're heading, and and then we'll uh, jump off of that as we uh, we identify those topics. Sure, sure. So, some of it is is internally produced. Uh, we have said, you know, the best way to run programs and the best way to, to have your technology surrounded is on the cloud because there's so many positives associated with that. And then we also got some influence um, by COVID when everybody went remote and needed that remote access to everything. And we also got some help by the chip shortage because people's servers were starting to age out and they said, how much is a server? Um, server prices went through the roof. IT resources, so local resources to manage your server that's sitting in the closet at your surgery center, those skyrocketed as well. So we took all those factors kind of combined, and that's kind of influenced people moving or, or at least investigating moving all of that technology out to the cloud. 
many of our centers still have servers. And uh, mm -hmm. why don't you talk a little bit about the expenses, the inherent risks and, and expenses that are involved in managing those uh, those local uh, servers that they have? Mm -hmm. So the, the one that scares a lot of people is the, the security. And I do believe there's going to be a session all about security. So I won't pretend to be an expert in security, but that is uh, one of the things that, that people have talked about. Um, and, and it's definitely something that, that would keep me up at night as an administrator. Um, when that server is sitting in, in your surgery center, you are solely responsible for the security of the data inside of it. And as you know, I'm sure you've seen it on the news. I'm sure, I'm sure you've seen it in, in the Becker's reports and the ASCA reports and everything else that, that phishing and, and uh, invasion and of server systems has gone up nearly 700% in the last five years. Yeah. So I look at that risk and I say, man, you know, how can I mitigate that risk? Well, I am not a security expert. I need to put that in an expert's hands. And so that uh, that is just an inherent risk that we see on those servers. And, and one of those things that, that drives people out to a cloud-based system. Uh, the other part of that is, is just the maintenance of it. Mm -hmm. uh, there's constantly patches from Microsoft to keep those base systems running. There's, there's constantly updates and, and feature enhancements that have to be added to the programs that you have. When we're using a cloud-based program, it can update on its own. So when you're walking around with your phone and you get that notification every week from Facebook that they're updating something automatically, you don't have to worry about it. But if you're using a server-based system, now when that update comes in, you have to apply that to the server environment and probably all the peripherals as well. So there's some, some resourcing there where where can I um, save some money, effort, and energy on the maintenance of my server? Uh, that also goes for the, the programs themselves. You know, when we look at, at the most popular ASC management system on the market right now, which is Advantix, it's been around since 1998. There's a lot of maintenance that needs to happen with that. And, and because it was built in an era when um, uh, everything was on a server, there isn't those attachments to it that go out and grab information from the internet, which is, is good and bad. I mean, the bad part of that is now you have to maintain your own zip code library in that server because it's not gathering that information from anybody else. You have to maintain your own CPT code library. You have to maintain all of those libraries that we've be, you know, become reliant on in, in the modern world. You have to manage because it's all contained within that physical server. So, so those are probably the, the factors I would uh, look at uh, when, I'm, when I'm considering that, that server that's sitting in my surgery center. Well, and, and to that end, too, is you're going to need to have an organization that's going to be providing you with uh, high-tech services there. Or, or, mm -hmm. uh, they're going to have to be very knowledgeable. They're going to have to be familiar with the software that you have installed, too. They, you know, those patches that have to be installed unless you have somebody in-house that that has the capability of doing that. And, and of course, heaven forbid something goes wrong with that patching. 
Um, exactly. Exactly. With SI, in your case, SIS or or the uh, the manufacturer, and and of course everybody is moving. I mean, I guess that's one thing we should talk about is that isn't it true that we're all moving away from that? Give give some examples of of not just you know the ASC software that's moving away from that, but other software in our industry. Yeah, you, you start looking at the big boys. Yeah. You start looking at Microsoft. I'm not even sure you can get Microsoft Word on your computer anymore. It's all web-based. And even if you see that icon on your computer, when you click on it, it isn't necessarily accessing files that are inside your computer. That's just the launch. Yeah. It's still going out to the internet to find it, it, its information. Um, every time you hit that help button, those help files are not in your uh, not in your computer. Those are going out to the internet to find that information, and it it's it's sitting on Microsoft's cloud. So uh, there's there's so many of those programs that are made to look like they're living on your computer or living on your server that that aren't. Um, I, I had trouble even in even finding some that that truly lived all on your computer that were built in the last five years. So yeah, we're seeing source. that trend overall. Yeah, I mean, there's open source things out there, but again, you're going to be taking the responsibility for your, you know, to maintain those programs yourself or somebody that you hired to do that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, before we get into uh, the vertical packages that we all work with and that we're obviously heading toward, talk about some of the other, you know, file servers in general. You know, maintaining your files. Um, you know, other applications that an organization might be moving to a cloud. I'll give you one example right now is that, um, you know, for my own companies, um, one company I've already moved to a cloud-based version of QuickBooks, for example. Mm -hmm. The other one, we have a, a six-month conversion process here because for those very reasons, we're, you know, we're trying to reduce the, uh, the, the, the load on the one server we have remaining, uh, as well as the immense overhead involved in, you know, getting getting all those files updated and maintaining that database and, and fixing things when something goes down. Mm -hmm. And and probably the one that's most relatable to surgery centers is their medical records. Yeah. Uh, when you start looking at what they're paying Iron Mountain to hold all those yeah. and, and what they're paying the, the real estate within their surgery centers that they're using to store all those, um, you know, within the last decade, we've seen a big swing of going to scanning in all those paper records and, and storing them on a cloud somewhere. And because of this massive movement to the cloud, storage has become a lot cheaper. And we just were waiting for that tipping point where the physical storage was now more expensive than the computer storage. Yeah. And now that we've we've crossed that line here within this last decade to where that uh, uh, that computer storage has become so much cheaper, we're starting to see that movement. But even then, you know, uh, even if I'm scanning in all my records and I'm sending them somewhere, I'm still in charge of, of the security unless I have contracted with someone uh, to, to be able to keep those secure. But uh, all of the advantages that, that surround that, um, you never have to worry about, uh, you know, 
a leak at the surgery center destroying all those records, or uh, you never have to worry about uh, all, all of the uh, uh, records that uh, uh, get misfiled, uh, you know, under the, the wrong uh, first name instead of the last name and, and things like that, because the, the, the systems are smart enough to figure that out. Uh, and then you're always limited in that physical size. I can only smash so many records into my records room where your cloud storage is virtually unlimited. Uh, once you exceed what you've paid for, there's always more um, uh, to, to have, depending on on how it's it's allocated throughout the country. But there is... Um, there is lit- literally unlimited storage for those items, and and that tends to, um, when you look at the 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 physical landscape that that you're occupying with paper, uh, and you start doing some quick math, uh, it it, uh, it it certainly drives you in that direction. Well, and, and uh, even things like simple file storage now mm-hmm. into a cloud. Uh, for example, our company, uh, we don't have servers. Uh, actually, mm-hmm. I mean, the, the, the QuickBooks server that we have is actually maintained in another office altogether. Uh, but all of our files that we maintain for, uh, for everything that we do, because we're a virtual company, is maintained in the cloud, which provides us, you know, keeps our costs low. We don't have to worry about maintaining that. We don't have to worry about wherever that's that server is stored and losing power uh and of course the huge uh issue of security being able to control that cloud-based storage talk a little bit about how that can affect the average surgery center one thing we should point out is darren you're not just an it guy you're you're actually not necessarily primarily an it guy but you actually came from us you know you came from the uh from the asc industry itself yeah, I, I, I'm a nurse by trade. So right. so I started, you know, fully gloved and gowned and 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 worked my way through that way through that pathway. Um, but as an administrator, that that was uh you know, I talk about the things that keep me up at night uh, as an administrator. I sat in those shoes uh for quite some time. Um so so I, I definitely know what things should be concerning them, even if they're not at top, uh, top of mind. That is that is for sure. Yeah. So what we're really talking about is even you know the files that you maintain, the mm-hmm. uh, um, you know your policy manual, which maybe isn't yet cloud based. Uh, even if you're maintaining that th- those Microsoft Word documents or there's PDFs for that, the minutes, uh, all of those things that. Uh, are generally, you know, we're moving away from even the paper side of them or or they've been generated on a computer. You might as well store them, you know, on a computer or in this case on in a cloud-based solution. And the nice thing about it is you don't have to worry about the backups. You don't have to worry about mm-hmm. necessarily cybersecurity. And we'll talk about that in a second here. Uh, and um, and you can access it from anywhere as long as you have the proper security and and the passwords to do that. John, you remember the good old days yeah, of walking into somebody. an administrator's office and right, seeing right. the three-inch, three-ring binders just lined up on the shelves. Yeah, that was my office as well. You know, policy and procedure manual, credentialing, and and all of those different manuals. And yeah. and I'm in hundreds of surgery centers every year, and and it, it is so nice to walk into those now and not see as many. There's still a few holdouts out there that that uh, haven't gotten some of that stuff moved on to the cloud. But it, it is very reassuring. Uh, to walk into an administrator's office and not see all those three-inch, three-ring binders sitting behind them. 
Well, and I'll tell you another advantage. You know, uh, of course, we have a lot of clients, and over the years, we've had nurse managers or administrators leave, and sometimes they, uh, shall we say, they delete files that uh, might have been on uh, the server. The nice thing about the cloud-based is, uh, you know, you buy the right, you know, security system in your cloud-based uh, file system, and you can restore them, you know, in minutes. And I guess the other point about that is that it they, they're not totally resistant to you know, cybersecurity issues like, you know, locking up files so that you can't access them unless you pay uh, ransomware. Hey, ransomware. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, but but it certainly makes it a lot more difficult to do that when you have it. I mean, we can roll back any of our things to any date and time, I think, going back 90 days. So as long mm-hmm. as I just and that's a problem within 90 days, I'm fine. Yeah. And that's an important factor for people to to keep in mind when they start looking at those systems is right. is not only what... Uh, what security systems do they have established? So one of them um, uh, that I'll mention that that you'll hear a lot of uh, people talk about is SOC 2 certification. I'm not a SOC 2 expert, but uh, you don't have to be. That's what SOC 2 is for. You'll also hear something called high trust. Uh, that is another certification process that you go through to ensure that you have the proper security uh, in place to prevent those things. There, there's a saying that, that they use all the time in technology. It's, it's not the if, it's the when. Yeah. So even if you have the tallest walls in the world, someone is going to find a way to get over that wall, right? right. When they get over that wall, what other things do you have in place to prevent um, them from getting to the the places that have uh, that sensitive data in it or that patient data in it? And even if they do get to that place and they do hold it for ransom, do I not have to pay them because I already have that somewhere else? Yeah. So, so when you're starting to look at these cloud-based systems, uh, whether it is EMR, file storage, credentialing, all of those different um, uh, things that have been moved to the cloud, it's important to make sure that they have uh, not only that security set up and, and have joined some of those certification programs like SOC 2 and, and High Trust and, and making sure that they have their cyber insurance uh, certificate available to you. But also, what is their disaster recovery plan or what does their contingency plans look like? Are they not only having uh, that information stored at one um, data center or is it being stored at multiple data centers? And if it's being stored at multiple data centers, are those data centers in different parts of the U.S.? Because if both of my data centers are sitting in Oklahoma and they get, uh, you know, right down there in Tornado Alley, get wiped out by tornadoes or or the big one hits California and I've got both of my uh, data centers sitting there, I'm going to be in trouble, right? So is it spread throughout the country? Uh, Do they have data centers that are working in conjunction with each other? So when you uh, save a file, it's not only saving it to the primary location in Dallas, but it's also in the backup center in Utah. 
Uh, and then asking about their disaster recovery. Yeah. Um, how soon after a disaster is declared at the primary center or, or the primary data center, can they have that disaster recovery site up and running and restoring your files? So depending on the types of files that you're looking at may decide uh, which, uh, which program you go with. You know, if I can't get to my employee files for 24 hours, that's not a big deal. If I can't get to my electronic health record, that's a much bigger deal, right? So the more access you require, of course, there's going to be a cost associated with that. So if you want that disaster recovery in a shorter time frame, you're going to pay a little bit more for it. So that's why it's it's good to look at what am I storing and where I'm storing it at, maybe at different places. So I may keep my, my medical records that I have scanned in in a, uh, a data center that has a more robust security program and a more robust disaster recovery than I keep my employee files and my employee health files and, and things like that. So those are just some of those considerations that when you start talking about cloud, it's not a one size fits all. It is something that, that you can look at in pieces where you don't have to pay the highest price for everything. Uh, you, you can actually get away with keeping those in different areas, um, depending on, on what your, your backup needs are. Yeah, and I think it, another uh, point to, to make to it, neither you or I are experts on hardware, I, I'm well aware. Um, mm -hmm. The requirements for the, com the computers that we purchase, the workstations that we purchase, are going to be far less complex than they would be if that computer had to house all of the programs that you're running, like you know QuickBooks, uh, you know, like you're, you mentioned Advanix earlier. You mm -hmm. know, every time you have to update Advanix, you're going to have to go to the workstations to update. You know, if it's an issue with the uh, the client software, you're going to have to update it there. Which means that's going to be time, that's going to be money, and it's going to be re require a certain level of. Uh, of computer, a type of computer, in order to be able to handle all that. Whereas, you know, as you move toward a cloud-based solution, um, that is less important that, than it mm -hmm. is how quickly can it access the the uh, the internet. That's a, a big consideration when people start looking at that too. You know, when we those of us that come from the old school remember the the specifications sheet to install Advantix on a computer is like three and a half pages long. Right. With outlining every piece and part that had to be present in order for Advantix to run. Yeah. Um, the, the one we use now for SysComplete and, and the specifications I've seen for Microsoft Word and Outlook and things like that, it's a half a page long. Basically, they're saying this is the internet speed you use. Right. And this is the minimum processor speed that you need. It's not, you need this much hard storage. This is random uh, access memory storage that you need. This is the, the video processing needs that you're going to require. All those things have, have uh, been simplified uh, by the cloud um, applications. It also allows you to consider different systems. Like within mm -hmm. our company, we have Apple's and we have... Uh, uh, you know, Windows-based computers, and as it really doesn't matter who's using what, you know, whatever their preferences. Um, mm -hmm. Obviously, Apple and, be much more expensive, but they're also more, you know, they tend to last a little bit longer. Whereas the Windows are practically disposable, I think, in some at, at this rate, yeah. 
Which is not a bad thing when you're, you know, like for us, they're all laptops, so mm -hmm. uh, they get banged around quite a bit. You don't want to keep replacing a very expensive computer. But Cloud-based computing has also opened up the world for mobile devices as well. Yeah. So, so there's no way I could have my iPhone accessing Advantix or uh, my iPhone running Microsoft Word uh, in, in its previous versions. Now with that cloud computing, the, there's the, the ability to move some of those things for convenience purposes, for, for, for ease of use purposes out to those mobile devices, which we've seen greatly expanded uh, lately as well. Yeah, your point is well taken is that, uh, you know, now with these cloud-based solutions, you can use an iPhone. You, you don't even have to worry about whether it's an iPhone or an Android. Um, mm -hmm. You know, you just log into it. For, for example, even our files, I can get on any of my, I have both an Android and I have a, an Apple, uh, and I can get any of those files. It's not always easy to read, uh, but I can access all that. And all of these cloud-based solutions out there, including the EMRs now have you know, some, or many of them have, uh, you know, a solution that allows you to carry around a phone instead of a whole laptop or the, the cows or wows or whatever we call them now, these rolling stations, you might be able to move to a, a different solution. By the way, I, I work with uh, one of the major accrediting organizations and uh, their new cloud-based solution, which will be rolled out within the next year, will include the ability to use your phone as you're walking around as a surveyor to be able to identify and and uh, write your notes or put your notes in there or click on, on buttons uh, to indicate what you observed during that procedure, which will, um, of course, there's some of us that are still going to pull out our pad of paper and, and use that. But I suspect when we get back to the uh, wherever room we've been assigned to, we're then going to pull out our, uh, our phone and then just put the notes into there so that it quickly goes to, to the system. Uh, so yeah, I think you're you're absolutely right. And think about it this way, and this, this gets into our, our final topic here is how does this relate to the systems that we rely on every single day that are obviously the most important systems in the average ASC. And that's your, your business office system. Uh, we usually call it a practice management system or a billing system or, as well mm -hmm. as EMR is that this has opened up the, the cloud-based solutions and open up in an, an entirely um, a different way for our, our stakeholders to access that information. So talk about, you know, your favorite topic obviously is, um, but uh, but this is the direction you're heading, obviously, as an industry. Yeah, and mainly because you know that's that. Besides all the things we talked about before, with with storage and and security and and all of those things, we start talking about the, the way that people work now and keeping up with the way that people work. You know, in the good old days when everybody was coming into the office and everybody had their little station with their their uh, the pictures of their family on it, and and they sat at that station all day and clicked away on that computer, um, those uh, those days are gone, and and I think we are headed in that way far before uh, the the COVID made us do it. Uh, COVID accelerated it by far, but uh, um, I, I believe that's where we were moving in the first place. And, and we saw that as well, uh, as did all the other technology companies out there. So how do we make sure that we can adapt our systems to, to be able to uh, work with that new society of, of working remotely? Doing that in a server-based world... Uh, it, was darn near impossible to keep it cost effective. 
So it almost forced us to go out to a cloud model. And in that cloud model, we just had to make sure that we had the appropriate security settings and security certifications and all those things that you need in order to, to have that remote work. But now that opens up everybody to a lot more possibilities as well. So I used to have to have a certified coder in my general area that I could use to come into the office and, and do the coding uh, for my, my procedures. Now that, that they can access all that information remotely and securely, it gives me a lot more capabilities um, and, and a lot more flexibility to be able to find those people. Same thing for all of those repetitive um, uh, things that we do that, that may require an expert. You know, coding is a great example and, and, and all that billing is a great example as well, is now I am not restricted to what's in a 50 mile radius of my, my surgery center because they'll have the capability of, of, of jumping into that system. Whereas before I could, yeah, I could hire someone that two, that's two hours away, but that means more work for me because now I'm sending them op notes and now they're coding those and they're sending me those codes back. And now I have to put those in the computer. My staff has to put those in the computers. So as we put the squeeze on surgery centers and it's, it's not, we, as in, as in uh, uh, CIS, we're saying as a society, insurance companies, Medicare, everyone's putting the squeeze on every corporation to do more with less, right? We're, we're not going to give you as much reimbursement, but you have to keep up the same level of, of, of care and, and concern for our patients. So when we start uh, looking at, at, at all of those factors that are squeezing us, then we have to find more efficient ways to work. And, and if we have the opportunity to do that in a remote environment, that's going to, to give us more opportunity to work in that, uh, work, work in that kind of environment where we can be more efficient and, and we can uh, have those, those tools that we need um, to work more efficiently. Well, and, and even, you know, in, a, in an environment now where we, we're having a hard time finding staff, finding people that are qualified, um, even identifying people within your 50-mile radius that might, uh, you know, like a, does a coder really have to work eight to five? You know, maybe mm -hmm. they work, you know, they have kids, they have to put the kids on the bus uh, in the morning, you know, whatever uh, the situation is. Or maybe they even have another full-time job and this is a part-time thing that they can do. It opens up a lot more possibilities for that. I, I also put something else out there right now is that we're finding with administrators in particular, it's hard with the director of nursing, uh, but there are some positions, even leadership positions in a surgery center where, you know, we're able to leverage um, a, a certain individual over multiple facilities, especially if there's one organization that has, you know, three sites in diverse areas, um, that one individual might be able to efficiently uh, be able to service all of those uh, those organizations. Now, I'm, I got to be very careful with this because I'm not a particular <laughs> fan of of having a, a virtual uh, administrator. Uh, what the only way I think that works is if you have somebody strong that is going to be there every day. Um, that, you know, that can take care of that. But certainly some of those oversight functions, uh, finance is another, you, you brought it up with, with coding mm -hmm. up to the finance area. I, I, 
you know, and of course I, I was trained as a, as an accountant in the beginning, you know, do we really have to be on site now? You know, when you're dealing with that type of things, you need to do accounts payable. Do you have to generate checks? No, hopefully most people are moving away from even checks at this point. Um, and, uh, you know, so do we really have to do all of that, uh, on site or can we find it more efficient, uh, to do that offsite and, and be able to maybe even work with organizations, you know, such as ours at AHS. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that serves multiple patients, much uh, multiple centers, much more efficiently than having mm-hmm. uh, you know one individual in your organization whose j- sole job is dealing with that. Yeah, and staffing is one thing. the The other uh, big component or element we talk about there is automation. Yeah. Is is if I'm trying to build some automation to make us more efficient, it's very difficult to build that in a server based system right. because it's it's it essentially is trying to call out of the base system to find the information somewhere else. And when I, I, I have that server sitting in my, my surgery center, it's going to have to be extremely powerful to be able to do that automation. So we're just increasing the cost of that server. And then there's that tipping point where those servers just become too expensive. Exactly. So now with those cloud-based systems, if you want that type of automation where it can go out and, and, and do some of those things that you're doing manually now, going out and grabbing patient benefits or going out and updating your CPT codes or zip code libraries, um, we use the U.S. Postal Service to go grab that information. Uh, and, you know, it, it, if you're going to build in or if you have an expectation of reducing the, the um, amount of work, energy, and effort that it takes to do something by employing automation, uh, then you have to have the horsepower within your system to do that. And you're not going to find that in a server. And, and Darren, isn't it also true that the pace of updating, of adding new functionality uh, to these systems is uh, is certainly going to be a lot easier on a, on a cloud-based system too? Yeah, that's that's a challenge that, that server-based systems have had all along. I don't care what kind of system it is. You know, that, that used to be when you called into support or when you contacted support, that was the first question they'd always ask. What version are you on? When you call Microsoft, they want to know what version you're on. And and when you call surgical information systems, what version are you on? Now, everybody's on the same version at the same time. And because everyone's on the same version at the same time, uh, it, it simplified our our ability to support the, those organizations, but it also opened up all kinds of doors and windows for upgrades, enhancements, bug fixes, all of those things too. Uh, instead of, um, I, I'm going to bring this up again, the good old days, I used to receive a, a manila envelope from, from Source Medical that had uh, discs in it. This is your new Advantix upgrade <laughs> that I'd have to plug those CD-ROMs into uh, my server. Uh, and that happened maybe... when all yeah. your, Because you couldn't do it during the day when the system's up. And then pray that exactly. it worked well so that you could start operations the next morning, which mm-hmm. I'm not saying SIS was a big problem with it, but I've worked with a lot of systems over the years where that upgrade just didn't work right. And the next morning I'm in, you know, calling uh, customer service and trying to deal with uh, whatever went wrong. Mm-hmm. 
and, and, you know, you were lucky if you got one or two of those a year. And even now, um, uh, we have difficulty packaging those up and making them uh, available more than one or two times a year just because of the effort and energy that it takes to do that work. Uh, in these cloud-based systems, we're pushing it out every week. So instead of these emails every week, know that full well, yes. Yep. But you're right. Yeah. And, you can upgrade and, literally on a weekly basis with this. Even mm -hmm. And of course, if you find a problem, a serious problem, you can patch it right away. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's that's something we talk about too. When, when people say, oh man, every week, isn't that going to break the system? Actually, no, it's actually much better for the system because instead of dumping 25 new features and bug fi fixes on your system, um, you know, you can only test so many variabilities. That's why when you got those disks in the mail, when you did those upgrades, it was going to break something. Um, now we can put it in little bite-sized pieces so we can introduce a feature in three or four upgrades before we have that feature fully enveloped and be able to turn it on. That way we can see how each little section of that feature is going to affect the overall program. So if we see something going wrong, we can fix it before the other three parts of that feature get put into the system. So, so it, it has greatly uh, stabilized that enhancement uh, of features, functionality, bug fixes, and, and things of the like. Yeah, and let's just finish by reiterating probably one of the, the hottest topics right now, and that's cybersecurity. You, know, you and I are not the experts on this other than to be able to state that Cybersecurity, if you haven't had a problem, you, you mentioned before, if you haven't had a problem yet, you probably will. We've run into it on an ongoing basis, not even necessarily maybe one of our centers, but a, you know, an organization they're affiliated with. Maybe they, you know, they get certain mm -hmm. things from the hospital, the hospital system goes down. Um, uh, you know, it could be any number of things that, that could affect your, your organization. If you're affiliated with a practice and the practice was attacked. Um, moving everything away from uh, to a cloud-based solution, which greatly reduces the possibility of a cybersecurity issue, is definitely going to reduce reduce your risk. And last Absolutely. Thing I always want to make is that you, if you're not doing a HIPAA security um, review on a regular basis, usually annually, doing a big one and then updating on an annual basis, you should be doing. It doesn't matter whether you're a uh, a cloud-based system or a uh, local system, you're still going to have those cyber, you're still going to have to assess your system because there's that entry point, those computers in your your office and, and that's connection to the internet uh, still mm -hmm. provide some risk. But you're getting rid of all those other security issues or cybersecurity issues uh, to the cloud-based uh, solution provider and and making sure that they maintain their uh, their security systems is extremely important. Yeah, and that that's a good point you bring up Is is I'm not a security expert. But I'm expected to be because I'm holding these records. So uh, where do I go to find that information? Well, I'm going to start looking towards the experts that for the systems that I'm using. Or, uh, you know, another great resource that a lot of people don't realize is insurance companies. 
insurance companies will provide you with cybersecurity insurance, but they're going to have uh, uh, their list of demands as well. In order for us to cover you, we need you to be employing these eight security factors. And so that's a, a great, good resource for people as well um, to understand what their expectations are. That's where they can label this as secure and insurable. So, so uh, uh, a lot of people don't realize that, that that can play into it as well. Darren, as always, this has been a pleasure. Thank you so much for your time. And uh, you'll probably be back within the next couple of months on some other topic, but I deeply appreciate your time. Absolutely. Thank you so much, John. And in this segment, we provide an update on upcoming topics for the podcast, our upcoming virtual conferences, and upcoming speaking engagements for John and his staff and other events in the ASC industry. And of course, the big news this week, and hopefully we'll get this episode out in the next mm -hmm. 24 hours, Ask Us 2023 Conference and Expo starts on May 17th, 2023, and goes through Saturday the 20th. And it's at the Kentucky International Convention Center in Louisville, Kentucky. Very Looking very much forward to it. I know uh, our staff is very excited. I know a lot of our uh, our listeners have said, are you going to be there? And uh, we're trying to figure out how we're going to get people together. More of an informal thing. I, you yeah. know, we really, it's almost impossible to get a crowd that large together yeah. without spending an awful lot of money and then trying to find a, a place that's an appropriate size. And the Arizona Ambulatory Surgery Center Association's annual conference and exhibits is June 22nd through the 23rd, 2023 at the JW Marriott Camelback and Resort and Spa in Scottsdale, Arizona. And the Florida Society of Ambulatory Surgical Center's annual conference and trade show is July 19th through the 21st, 2023 at the Lowe's Portofino Bay Hotel in uh, Universal Orlando. The Ohio Association of Ambulatory Surgery Center's annual education conference and ex exhibition is September 19th and 20th at the Hilton Polaris in Columbus, Ohio. And we just passed that on the we way did. down here. It was kind of funny. And, of course, we're always a, a major exhibitor there, and uh, I'm sure I'll be speaking there also. And we do a podcast, always do a podcast from there. And the Idaho Ambulatory Surgery Association's annual conference is September 21st to the 22nd at the Hilton Garden Inn in Boise, downtown. And don't forget about all of our upcoming boot camps. Uh, the May Director of Nursing Boot Camp is May 30th through June 2nd, 2023. And for more information, go to ASCPodcast.com. So this is a virtual, it's a four-day virtual conference, um, and it's recorded. So people can go back and forth, and, and if they miss mm -hmm. any of it, is often the case. And there's also the mentoring sessions. There's the weekly optional drop-in sessions. There's access to a huge database. It's an incredible opportunity to learn everything you need to know about uh, being a director of nursing, or so I'd like to think. Um, and then we do have the multi-state conference coming up June 12th through the 13th. If you're a member of uh, one of the five state associations that are uh, co-sponsoring this conference, you can attend it for free. Or if you are a patron member of the podcast, you can attend it for free. Otherwise, it's a very reasonable $299.99. Uh, and you get 16 AEUs or and four and or four IPCHs for listening to it. Um, it's going to be a great conference, two days, uh, two-hour sessions each. So these are in-depth sessions we're going to be talking about. And the states that are sponsoring are Virginia. New York, Massachusetts, Pennsylvania, and Texas. So if you're a member of any of those associations, uh, feel free to sign up for free at ASCPodcast.com.
And the July Administrators Boot Camp is July 11th through the 14th, 2023. Just like the Director of Nursing Boot Camp, it's a four-day virtual conference, uh, as well as that mentoring that we talked about earlier. And the newest addition to our boot camp is going to be the August Business Office Manager Boot Camp, August 8th through the 11th, 2023. Same thing, four-day you know, virtual conference, and this is the first time that anybody has ever done an office manager boot camp. So we're very excited about mm-hmm. that. So we got a lot of things going on. We're going to be very busy for the next couple yes. months, aren't we? And also, don't forget about our recorded events. They're all available on ASCPodcast.com. Uh, we have the Credentialing Conference, the Fall 2022 Finance and Accounting Conference, the Conditions for Coverage Conference that we were talking about, you know, open book test. Well, right. this is a different way of, of learning about a lot of those. Um, Medical Director Conference, the On-Demand Director of Nursing and Administrator Boot Camps are also there. And all of those are available on ASCPodcast.com. And we do, again, I know we emphasize this quite a bit during the podcast, but our patron members really are a big support for our organization, really help pay the bills here, and we get so much feedback from them. They really have been a great uh, addition to our, uh, our podcast. So the Patron Member Program, which is also known as ASC Central, is an exclusive membership website that provides a one stop ASC regulatory and accreditation compliance operations and financial management resource for busy administrators, nurse managers, and business office managers. And resources include access to some of our virtual conferences, links, policies and procedures, forms, drills, and other benefits. Uh, For more information, again, visit ASCPodcast.com. Well, thank you for tuning in to this episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey. We hope you found this discussion informative and engaging. If you did, we encourage you to share it with your friends and colleagues in the ASC industry. And don't forget to hit that subscribe button so you never miss an episode. We'd like to give a special shout out to our amazing team who make this podcast possible. Our sound editor, myself, Susan Cronkite, our executive producer, John Gailey, and our dedicated research team, Jenna Alvarez, Judy D'Ambrosio, Alex Borneman, Zach Caloritis, Amy Durbano, Lori Rodericks, Kathy Fodi, Donna Macchio, and Ann Geyer. We couldn't do it without them. Our music is provided by Media Sushi and Mike Noah, and the ASC Podcast with John Gailey is hosted on Podbean and is available on all major podcast platforms. We look forward to bringing you more exciting discussions and insights in future episodes. Thanks for listening. And we'll see you all at ASCA 2023. This episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey is sponsored by Surgical Information Systems, SIS. SIS's mission is to deliver solutions and services that help surgery providers, regardless of care setting, improve their organization so they can deliver the highest level of care to their patients. For more information, go to sisfirst.com. This podcast is an educational and operational tool and is not intended to be a comprehensive resource for all rules, regulations, and standards that an ambulatory surgery center must meet. The advice provided should not be considered as, nor does it constitute legal advice or opinion. When reviewing specific situations involving legal and regulatory issues, attorneys and other professionals should be consulted. This has been a production of Eden Group Development. All rights are reserved. If you're interested in advertising or sponsoring the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, please email us at info at ASCPodcast.com. We would love to hear your questions and comments. Please email us at comments at ASCPodcast.com.